Uh, Matthew 18, 21 through 35, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he, he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant, same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy, had had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in anger, his, servant, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father, father will do to you, every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you all for being here. Thanks for finding us. Um, we've kind of been like this nomadic ministry the last couple weeks, and we'll be here again next week. And then after next week, when we're here for the rest of the year, we'll be back in our usual spot, the mansion. They just had like couple things going on over there. We couldn't be there. And so thanks for being flexible with us. Um, if you're here for, to RUF, this is your first time here, especially we're really glad to have you. Welcome. Uh, my name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister for RUF at Texas. And uh, RUF is a place where we believe that um, there's really good news. Uh, it's a place where you don't have to be a Christian to be here. In fact, I kind of always hope that there are people who are here who are checking out the faith, and so this is a place where you're welcome uh, to explore and ask questions and think about what does the Bible say. Um, and one of the reasons I want you here and I want Christians here too asking these questions is because we think that the Bible has really good news, not for just good people, but actually for sinners. Because we, what we believe the Bible is telling us is that we are actually more sinful than we could ever dare. To imagine, but also that in Christ we can be more loved than we ever dared dream. And so that means that we're all kind of in the same boat. We all are equally in need of grace, but also in Christ we can all receive it. And uh, one of the ways that we see this, a very important way in which we see God giving us his grace in the scriptures, is that God is a God who offers forgiveness, the God of the Bible. And his forgiveness is pretty radical, the way that he forgives people. And we've been looking at this semester at this person named Peter and his life. And Peter is going to be somebody who radically receives the grace and forgiveness of God throughout the course of his life. We'll see that in some stories that happen to him in the future, especially in the coming weeks. But before Jesus is even going to display that kind of forgiveness, he's already done it in some stories that we've looked at this semester. 
he's actually going to teach Jesus, or he's going to teach Peter in this story, this parable that we look at today, about three things about forgiveness. One, and this is kind of how I'm going to outline uh, tonight. One, the need for forgiveness. Two, the cost of forgiveness. And three, the imperative of forgiveness. So the need the cost, and the imperative of forgiveness. So before we dive into that, let me pray for us before we start. Lord, I ask now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you. And we give you thanks for this place and this time that we can meet. And we ask that you would be with us and that you would help us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there was a man named Simon Wiesenthal. And... Uh, he is known by most historians as one of the leading agents for catching Nazi war criminals after World War II. And Simon took this job very eagerly because when he was a younger man, he was actually uh, living in Poland with his family, who was all Jewish. And Simon saw a lot of terrible things that the Nazis did to his hometown, to his own family. For instance, Simon saw when Nazis burst into his home, he saw his grandmother gunned down in his own house. Simon saw his mother loaded onto a train car uh, of standing room only, full of women who no one ever saw again. Simon uh, was later put into a work camp, and he was made an orderly in one of the hospitals in uh, this work camp in Poland. His job was to clean, mop, sweep, put out the garbage. But one day, and he records this story in a book of his um, called Sunflowers. Uh, One day, a nurse came to get him, and she asked, are you a Jew? He said, yes. She said, come with me. She takes him down this corridor of halls, this kind of maze of halls, and she brings him into a room where there is a Nazi troop who is about to die. And he's covered from head to toe in uh, medical gauze. Really the only thing that he, he can see is this man's mouth and nose. And the man uh, asks him, are you a Jew? And he says, I am. And then the man goes on to say, I'm, my name is Carl. And I have to tell you about a horrible thing that I have done because you're Jewish and I've done horrible things to your people and I cannot die in peace unless I've been forgiven. And he goes on to begin telling Simon about his life as a child growing up in a church, losing his faith in a Hitler youth corps. And then he's, ends up and then finally tells him the story about when he was in the Ukraine and he stumbled upon uh, some of the troops that he was with stumbled upon a booby trap that killed 30 of their troops. And in retaliation to this, they, these other troops who were still alive went into a town full of innocent people. They gathered 300 Jews, men, women, children, small babies, And they gathered them and drove them with whips into a small three-story house that they doused in gasoline and then threw grenades upon and ignited. 
Carl recounts, we heard screams and saw the flames eat their way from floor to floor. We had our rifles ready to shoot down anyone who tried to escape from that blazing hell. They were our target practice. The screams from that house were horrible. Behind the windows of the second floor, I saw a man with a small child in his arms. His clothes were alight. And by his side stood a woman, doubtless the mother of the child, with his his free hand The man covered the child's eyes, and then he jumped into the street, and we shot his body as he flew. Seconds later, the mother followed. They're falling bodies, now target practice. Carl said he was most haunted by a young boy, maybe six, the boy with the dark eyes that he shot and killed. And then he says, I am left here with my guilt, and in the last hours of my life, you are here with me, and I do not know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew, and that is enough. I know that what I have told you is terrible. In the long nights while I have been waiting for death, time and time again I have longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him, only I didn't know if there were any Jews left. I know that what I am asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer I cannot die in peace. And so Simon sat there in silence, feeling the weight of his entire race on his shoulder, wondering what to do. And then without saying a word, he stood up and walked out the room. And he wrote this book called Sunflowers, in which he asked the question, is there a limit to what we should forgive? And he asked, and he asks in this book a number of people, scholars, theologians, priests, Protestants, rabbis. One American professor comments and says, the enormity of the crime exceeds all possibility of forgiveness. A novelist wrote, let the Nazi die unshriven, let him go to hell. A Christian writes, I think I would have strangled him in his bed. Uh, Another theologian, Philip Yancey, he's a Christian, he writes and said, I was taken aback by the near uh, uh, unanimity of the responses. I expected the Christians to speak more of mercy, but in a world of unspeakable atrocity, forgiveness indeed sometimes seems unjust, unfair, irrational. And I think what he's getting at is this hard reality that we we Christians can talk a lot about love, grace, mercy. And we like love, grace, and mercy when it's something for us. When it's something that's given to us. But we don't always like it for the people who've wounded us who've damaged us, who've hurt us. And yet, Jesus is clear in this passage. If you've been given God's mercy, his expectation is that we would extend that same mercy to others. But how are we supposed to do this? How can we do this? Well, first, I want to look at the need for forgiveness. In verse 21, Peter asks Jesus an important question. 
how much should we forgive others? Like, what's the standard? And in fact, there was a standard in that day. We actually have a tract from like 180 AD that um, a rabbi had written at that time. And uh, the standard was you should forgive someone three times. And then the fourth time, like, you're done forgiving. And that, that may sound harsh, but think about, like, think about if someone gossiped about you. And they came up to you and said, hey, I just want you to know, I'm really sorry about this, but I like that secret that you told me, or I, I went and told someone else about it. Maybe you would forgive them. But think about if they came up like, a, like the next week and they said, hey, just want you to know that like, I gossiped about you again. You'd be like, are you serious? Like you just, <laughs> you just did that. And then if they came up a third time, like... A couple weeks later, like, hey, sorry, like, no me, like, Lucy Loose Lips over here, just like, couldn't help myself. You would be like, okay, we're done. I even felt that this is kind of weird, but like, I, my, uh, my, my sophomore year in college, I liked this girl that a guy, another guy that I knew liked. And we kind of, you know, just liked the same girl. And uh, I was, I just told him, hey, I'm going to ask her on a date. I'm sorry, I hope it's okay. He's like, Okay, whatever, fine. Instead of third on a date, didn't work out. But the next year, I started liking Chrissy Greenewald, who's now Chrissy Trapp. And guess who else liked her? <laughs> that, uh, that guy. And it was even asking someone for forgiveness twice is horrible. I was dreading going to him and being like, hey, dude, you know how I asked out that girl that you liked last year? Yeah, I'm totally going to do that again. I'm sorry. <laughs> Glad I did, by the way. But anyway, you guys, which, by the way, you should ask each other out. It's great. Um, anyway. Um, but we, we neither like forgiving over and over or even asking for forgiveness over and over. And Peter strolls up and he kind of does a very Peter thing. You know, the standard is three. So he's like, hey, Jesus, how many times should we forgive someone? Seven times. Like, I'm going to double the standard plus one. <laughs> it's like, congratulations, Peter. You're such a suck up. Uh, Jesus's response is, no, actually, Peter, not seven times, but 77 times. And what he's getting at with that is not that, like, you need to keep a little notepad. It's just tally marks of, like, all right, when you gossip about me the 78th time, we're done, you know. What he's actually referencing, there's this really interesting passage in Genesis 4.23. So the fourth chapter of the Bible, where we begin to see how much sin has, what it's done to people already. And at the beginning of Genesis 4, you see the first brothers ever, Cain and Abel. And Cain kills Abel. This is what sin is doing to our world. And then we hear about some of Cain's children, one of which is Lamech. And we see how much sin is affecting the world. Even Lamech is, by the way, already practicing polygamy. This thing he's about to say, he says to his wives. And he makes this boast. I have killed a man for wounding me. I've killed a man for just wounding me. A young man for striking me. And then he says, if Cain's, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech is making this boast about this boundless revenge of men that, that men have that he has now. 
And Jesus is showing that his standard is to replace boundless revenge with boundless forgiveness for his followers. So how can we have boundless forgiveness? How can we participate and enjoy that forgiveness and then extend it to others? First, we have to see that we need it. So Jesus tells this parable. And the parable... The, the numbers that he uses just kind of, they don't land with us in the same way because we don't talk about uh, monetary values in the terms of like talents and denarii, which is what he t- talks about. But he, he uses these astronomical numbers to describe the debt of this first servant. In fact, he uses the largest number in the Greek number system, 10,000, and the largest unit of monetary wealth, a talent, and he uses both of them, 10,000 talents. This would have been, I mean, one of the commentators I read said this would be equivalent to like $300 billion. That's how much, I mean, Jesus just throws out this massive number. You know, it's like more, it's like twice the market cap of Netflix right now, $300 billion. And he says, that's how much this guy owes. Now, I want you to ask, how would someone accrue a debt like that? Right? That, that is, he's not just kind of a run-of-the-mill servant. It means he's been entrusted with a ton by this king. And not only that, but the way that you accrue a debt like that is either by mismanagement, like horrible management, or corruption. That's the kind of servant that, that this is. And he's guilty and he's desperate. And he makes this kind of ridiculous claim. It's not kind of ridiculous, it's totally ridiculous. He says, I'll pay it back. No, you won't. It's $300 billion. You can't do that. It's impossible. And yet he claims that he can. And the same is true for us. Jesus is telling us this story that in order for us to be forgiven, we have to see how big our debt is. And the reality is, before God, we have the same kind of debt. The same kind of infinite debt. And we're fooling ourselves if we think that we can do something to pay it back. Ephesians 2.1 says, As for you, you were dead in your sins. We're dead in our sins. A dead person can't do much to save themselves. And yet that's what Paul says is our state. Later on in Romans 3.20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. You can't do enough works of the law. You can't be good enough to earn God's forgiveness, to relieve yourself of the debt. And If you think that you can, it's kind of a sign of just how off you are. uh, Before I was a campus minister, I was a youth pastor in Houston. And our uh, fourth and fifth grade ministry, it it was called Code 45. It's a hip fourth and fifth grade ministry. Uh, We had a Code 45 party. And it was at these people's house, and they had, have you guys ever seen the ground-level trampolines? Where people, like, dig out a big hole in their yard, and then they lay a super bouncy trampoline across 
the hole and just like hope that their children don't die. So these people had this amazing ground level trampoline and the Code 45 kids are going crazy on it. They're having a great time until one of the pads that's like on like around <laughs> this thing kind of like slid off and one little boy got double jumped way up into the air and came down on the concrete corner of the pit and like opened up like a mouth in his leg. Okay, sorry. All right, I want so, and it was it was I won't describe it too much, but uh, it was horrific. And you could see things you shouldn't see. And he walks up to the mom of the house and says, Excuse me, do you have a band-aid? I think I'm hurt. And she's like, yeah, we can get a band-aid. She looks at his leg and like almost passes out. Because his leg has a mouth on it. And sorry. And so we we took him to the he went to the emergency room and got 60 stitches. He didn't need a band-aid, he needed 60 stitches in his leg. By the way, Fiji's he's one of your pledges now, so please watch out for him. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But Look, the problem was he thought, he thought that his leg, he was in shock. He was, the only way that he could walk up to that sweet mom who was about to get just blown away by what she was going to see, is that he was in shock and had no idea what was really going on with him. And he thought a band-aid could fix it. And that's what's going on with this servant. He has no clue the, the amount of need he is in. And the fact that he doesn't get it is just a sign for how much he actually needs help. And the same is true with us. I have the, the, the thought that pops into my head every once in a while. We're like, I'm not that bad. Like, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm like a pastor. It's like something, right? And that is a sign that I'm in trouble. It's like thinking you need a Band-Aid for a mouth. Sorry. (laughs) Because the reality is that we have a debt and it's too costly for us to pay it. Because forgiveness is costly. It's my second point. The cost of forgiveness. It's always costly. Because even even though the debt is forgiven, the cost of the debt doesn't go away it just means that someone else is paying for it and in this story it's the king the king is taking a 300 billion dollar loss on this guy he is paying the debt and forgiveness always costs us something because there is a felt injustice gap when you experience something that's been done to you that's wrong and it costs something it costs something to god for him to forgive us uh, my friend John told me a story. He's got uh, a couple daughters. And he said this came, the, the importance for um, the cost of forgiveness came into his mind when this uh, little thing happened between his daughters. He was sitting there in the kitchen, his daughter, Callie and Catherine. Callie's the older sister, Catherine, little sister. And they were kind of like getting into it a little bit and getting scrappy, you know. And... Uh, 
John looks up and right in front of her, right in front of John, Callie just rears back and clocks Catherine across the face, just slaps her across the face, just a big old slap. And John just goes, hey, what, what's going on in here? And Callie just looks at him and she goes, will you forgive me? <laughs> and John, st- John said, like, I stopped and thought, I was like, hmm, like, is this like one of those cool, like, show my kid grace moments, you know? <laughs> and he's thinking about it. And then he looks at Catherine and she's looking at him like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Just think about it. What would it say to Catherine if John just said, yeah, you know what? No big deal. It's fine. What does that say to Catherine about her dignity, about her value? You see, he said, after I saw that play out and I went and punished Callie, it gave me a little bit more of an understanding for why Jesus had to go to the cross. Because there was a debt. And something, there was a debt that needed to be paid because God's perfect creation had been ruined. And his image bearers had been defaced with sin. But the good news of the gospel is what we just sang Jesus paid it all, He paid all of the debt. That's why we sang, and when before the throne, I. We didn't sing, and before the throne, I stand complete. We sang, and when before the throne, I stand in him complete. In Christ, we are complete. We can stand before the throne of God with no debt. With actually no debt and all the credit of Jesus' perfect life given to you. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat because of this amazing truth. That the gospel claims that I do not earn my way in. But that Jesus, his perfect work makes me complete. Jesus' dying words, telestai. In Greek, we translate it uh, in the book of John, it is finished. This Greek word is the same word that you would use on bills of payment, like receipts in the first century. And it, it would mean paid in full. Telestai, paid in full. It's finished. What's amazing about God's grace is this. Because we couldn't pay the debt, because we couldn't earn it, there's nothing left for us to do. And there's nothing that you can do to lose it if you are in Christ, because you are forgiven in Christ. And it is finished in Christ. The work is done in Christ. In Him you stand complete. So then why the second part of this parable? My friend Matt Howell says, uh, he says this parable is kind of like the, the scary Halloween candy that they warn your kids about with like the razors inside. By the way, who actually does that? Is that a real story that someone did that? That is terrible. But uh, he says, you know, it, this parable is one of those things where you put, like, you put it in your mouth and it tastes sweet at first, but then it cuts in the end. And this parable cuts at the end. And that's why I want you to see the, the third point, the imperative of forgiveness. Because in verse 28, this same servant who's been forgiven an amazing debt, 
he finds someone who owes him a much smaller debt, like a, a couple hundred bucks. And he begins choking him, saying, pay what you owe. And when he doesn't, he gives him the same punishment. He throws him into jail. The same punishment that he was going to get. And what he's demonstrating is that he has no idea what's been done for him. He doesn't believe what has been done to him. He doesn't get it. And this parable echoes a very dangerous prayer that Jesus actually taught his disciples to pray. When we, have you ever really listened to the Lord's Prayer? It is dangerous. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or if you're a debt person, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I'm on team debt, by the way, but I don't think it matters. But what is Jesus saying there? Let the standard by which you forgive me, God, be how I forgive others. I want that to be how you forgive me. Um, That could be terrifying to pray that. And maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, wait, John, you just told me that Jesus paid it all, that I can't earn my way into heaven. It's not about what I do. And now you're telling me that I'm going to be forgiven based on how I forgive others. How does that connect? It does. Because the warning is telling us that the way that we forgive other people will reveal if we really understand how God has forgiven us. If we really believe that we stand in him complete. That's why Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Meaning, if you really believe that your infinite debt was paid for in full by Jesus on the cross and that you stand in him complete, Gee, I think that's probably going to change the way that you interact with your debtors. And what that means is forgiveness is it's not about letting the other person off the hook. It's actually about recognizing that we are on the same hook. Um, and I want just a brief side note. On this, because this, what I'm saying can be heard and it can sound like, well, I just need to let like an abuser keep abusing me. Um, But what an unrepentant person needs, the thing that an unrepentant person most needs is to become a repentant person. And no one become, people don't become repentant people by you allowing them to continue hurting you. So the way, that we, the way that the Bible calls us to love a repentant person is forgiving them, loving them, showing them mercy. The way the Bible talks about uh, loving an unrepentant person is limits, boundaries. The Bible says things like admonish them or go to them with a brother or sister or pray for them. Or in some places, the Bible says have nothing to do with them. You don't give, if, if you give somebody um, mercy as they're continuing to hurt you over and over again, you're, you're essentially giving them permission to keep hurting you. 
the way that you love them is by, is about creating boundaries in your life. Um, I felt like that was an important side note to say, but the razor in the chocolate here is that the standard by which we are forgiven is in fact the way that we forgive others. But this isn't, this isn't because we are earning our salvation. It's because we already have it. And so what that means is our forgiveness becomes a fruit of our belief in our forgiveness. And so here's my challenge to you. Do you have people in your life, maybe in this room, who you aren't forgiving? If you are in Christ, what would it look like to see that you are on the same hook? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you're living under the weight of bitterness because of the things that have been done to you or how you've been mistreated. And you wonder, is there any way that this thing can stop ruling over me? The Bible actually offers a way out. The Bible, the gospel gives you the power to begin working through the ability to forgive others. And it's not, it doesn't have to be an instant thing. Like the Psalms talk a lot about grief and sadness. And that's probably a good place to start when you've been wronged. It's okay to be sad. Perhaps you're here and you need to ask for forgiveness. From a friend or from God. The good news is what we just sang, come ye sinners, he is willing. Come ye sinners. He is willing. Doubt no more. Let not conscience make you linger. Don't linger and wait because of your conscience. Come, ye sinners. He is willing and able. Doubt no more. So come to him. Let him begin to change you. Because as God works in our lives, he does produce the ability for us to radically forgive others. So I'll close with this story. It's a story written um, by Stanley W. Green. He recorded this in the Canadian Mennonite newspaper. It says this. In an emotionally charged courtroom, a South African woman stood listening to white police officers acknowledge their atrocities. Officer Vandebroek acknowledged that along with others... He had shot her 18-year-old son at point-blank range. He and the others partied while they burned the son's body, turned it over and over on the fire until it was reduced to ashes. This happened during apartheid in South Africa. Eight years later, Vandebroek and others returned to seize her husband. She was forced to watch her husband bound on a wood pile as they poured gasoline over his body and ignited the flames that consumed him. The last words she heard her husband say were, forgive them. Now, Vandebroek awaited judgment. South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission asked the woman what she wanted. I want three things, she said calmly. First, I want Mr. Vanderbroek to take me to the place where they burned my husband's body. I would like to gather up the dust and give him a decent burial. Second, Mr. Vanderbroek took all my family away from me. 
and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. Third, I would like Mr. Vandebroek to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. And I would like to embrace him so he can know my forgiveness is real. And as the elderly woman was led across the courtroom, Vandebroek fainted, overwhelmed. And someone began singing Amazing Grace, and gradually everyone joined in. This is a whiff of the grace. It's a taste of the grace and forgiveness that God has given to us. Because we were rebels and his enemies. We did not deserve it. And God always gives us mercy so that we can extend it to others just like this woman has. How can someone do that? They can only do that if they see that they too are on the same hook. Y'all, we need this in our world. Our world is so divided and so tribal. And we want to point the finger and say all the bad things the other side has done. What our world needs is grace and forgiveness. And you, if you're a Christian, you have what the world needs. You have it. And so because of that, we get to be steward of, stewards of God's grace. I'll close with what Peter says about that. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 10. Peter, who's just heard this parable as he reflects later in his life. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. We have been given God's grace. If you are in Christ, you stand in Him complete. You get to be a steward of extending His grace to a world that needs it. So let's participate in that together. Let's do it. Let's give God's grace to others. It starts with forgiveness. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you really have given us a way where we can stand before you with no debt and with all the credit of Jesus' perfect life where we can stand in him complete. We pray that we would hold on to this truth and that because of that, that you would make us people who are ready and able to show radical forgiveness to people who hurt us, to our family, our friends, roommates, classmates. Help us to be people who forgive wholeheartedly just as you forgive us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.